Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is noted fire ecologist Rick Halsey. Rick authored the book Fire, Chaparral, and Survival in Southern California and has given countless talks on the subject. He has a background in environmental studies, anthropology, and education with degrees from the University of California, Santa Barbara, Cal State San Diego, and UC Berkeley. Today we discuss the myths and realities of wildfire. We discuss the ecosystems of the West and their natural fire behaviors, the surprising negative impacts of fuel removal and prescribed burns, how indigenous fire management techniques fit into the discussion, and much more. While we focus extensively on California, the principles discussed apply to most of the West and the U.S. We take a few tangents in the discussions, including an insightful view of Rick's education experience and approaches. As an educator, Rick was the recipient of the Krista McAuliffe Fellowship. Over the years, he's fine-tuned his delivery and has a wonderful essay on his transformation from lecturer to the engage model. Rick has combined his educational skills and knowledge of ecology to focus on chaparral habitats, the most important habitat in the wildland-urban interface in California's major cities. He is the founder and director of the California Chaparral Institute, which is dedicated to preserving what remains of California's chaparral through scientific research, nature education, and activism. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rick Halsey. Rick, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Because as you know, wildfire, it's something that has been in the news a lot. There's been so much of it this year, so many unprecedented fires across the West, whether it be in Colorado, California, Oregon, Arizona, uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. And most of these events have had a lot of media coverage and many of them have been politicized as well. And when I look at those headlines, a lot of it really seems suspect. And of course, the reason why I have you on the show is because you've been studying wildfire for many years and have a lot of expert knowledge. And when I look at some of the in vogue things that are being discussed in the media, or in social media for that matter, it's things like thin the forests, return to indigenous practices, more prescribed burns. And when we evaluate each of those potential solutions, it's clear that in some circumstances they're just flat out wrong, and others maybe the mileage may vary. So today I hope we can get into some of the different fire regimes and different habitats and how fire behaves differently in each of those. And just one other bit of background for me, I grew up in the Midwest, so wildfire was something that, while it was interesting to me, it wasn't something I experienced firsthand. So much of what I learned was from Smokey Bear PSAs or watching the nightly news. I remember the 1988 Yellowstone fires, for example, as being very eye-opening for me. So I certainly have a lot of embedded myths in my own knowledge of the space, so I'm hoping that you can help call out some of those and we can work through and correct some of those today. So to start off, maybe we should just talk about the plant biomes, the plant communities that exist in the West and specifically California and how fire behaves differently there. And I guess even going back a bit further, what is natural for these environments and how do you define natural in the first place? Is it pre-European settlement? Is it 
pre-human settlement. So that's probably like five questions all rolled into one. So uh, take it where you want to go, and then I'll circle back and fill in the gaps. Well, that's a great question, and we're in a beautiful state to actually discuss that, and I'll tell you why. California is one of the most incredibly biodiverse places on Earth, and there's so many different plant communities and ecosystems and habitats, and unfortunately, our species has a tendency to simplify things um, so we can kind of get our heads around it. But when it comes to fire and nature, we've we've oversimplified it to the point where the simplification is actually causing problems for us and making the issues that we're dealing with, in particular fire, much more complex and devastating than, than they need to be. So the fires that you hear about continually in the newspaper, they keep talking about forest fires because those are where the big flames are and that's where all the attention is. But that's only maybe 15% of the state. 10% of the state is actually chaparral, which has no trees in it at all, except for a few minor examples. And it's the most extensive ecosystem in the state. It's in every single county, I think, except for uh, Sacramento. It used to be in Sacramento, but we've had a tendency not to like chaparral because we can't log it, we can't graze it. So the default is to get rid of it. And we've done that through excessive fires by overgrazing. In fact, the state had a policy to eliminate chaparral in as many places as possible. And surprising to people is there was also an oak eradication program that was funded by the state and the federal government to expand grazing land. And now oaks are seen as such treasured items. It's, it's surprising to hear that. But you know, the one consistent thing we have going for us in the land management, nature management world is we've consistently been wrong. At the time, we think we're spot on. Well, of course we need to get rid of the oak trees. Of course we need to get rid of the chaparral. Predators like wolves, coyotes, cougars, grizzly bears, get them out of the national parks. They're not safe for people to be around. So we had a predator control program in the national parks in the 1930s to eliminate these incredibly valuable species. And what are we doing now? Oh, we made a mistake. There's that dynamic overlaying everything. Getting back to the ecosystems, you also have a lot of grasslands in the state, which unfortunately aren't natural anymore. They're overwhelmed by non-native weeds and grasses from the Mediterranean area especially. What native grasslands we had have long since vanished. There's a few places left that have some of the classic perennial grasses like the California state grass, which a lot of people don't know we have. It's California purple needlegrass. And it's still surviving with the non-natives in some places. Most of these grasslands are either converted shrublands, at some point sometimes forests, and especially chaparral, that didn't exist before. And the biggest grassland in North America, on the West Coast anyway, was in the Central Valley, which is now filled with almond trees and row crops and everything else. We've lost a lot of that. There's a few places left, but not many. You also have sage scrub, which is a shrubland environment. And it's sort of similar to chaparral and that chaparral is dominated by shrubs too, like manzanita and ceanothus. But the difference between the two, in sage scrub, you have things like sage and sage and more sage. It's <laughs> different species of them. You, If you walk through it and you smell like an after-dinner man, it's, you, you've been in the sage scrub environment. If you try to walk through it and come back bleeding, you've been in the chaparral. Then you have a lot of the coastal environments with the 
with the uh, rainforest kind of situation where you have a lot of moisture, especially in the Big Sur and the Pacific Northwest areas that were relatively untouched. But those are far and few between. A lot of the landscapes that are forested now, especially on the western side of the Sierras and even the coast areas, they've been pretty decimated once, if not twice, if not three times. And they're not really that natural. They've been clear cut. They've been sprayed with herbicides. They've been overgrazed. They've been turned into farms for wood. So when you walk through a forest, sometimes what you're walking through is not really a forest, but it's a man-made garden that uh, is not near the level of biodiversity that, that it once exhibited. So going from the California coast inland, you have, well, I guess it's going to vary a little bit. You know, in Southern California, you're going to transition pretty quickly to desert, but say Central California northward, you're going to start off with these rainforests and that transitions for much of the state into some sort of coastal scrub. Maybe the scrub actually precedes the rainforest in some spots. Um, but then you have a chaparral band, and then you go into the Central Valley, which is primarily agriculture now, and hit the Sierra Nevada, which transitions pretty quickly from chap chaparral to oak woodland up to coniferous forest, and then on the other side, downward very quickly through juniper and the Great Basin, which is desert. Right. So California is about 10% chaparral, 15% forest, and what what about from a fire perspective, however? So when we hear about these thousands of acres that are burning, how is that distributed across the forest and the chaparral and these other environments? I guess where I'm really going with this is that ultimately, how does this compare with what's natural and, say, in the distant past? Well, that's a great question. And it's, it's a fun question because it, it generally goes counter to what everybody thinks. <laughs> so that's always fun to discuss. So up until this summer, fire-wise, all the most catastrophic, devastating fires, and when I mean that, I'm talking about loss of life, human life, and property, has been in shrubland-dominated ecosystems. There just were not really any major forest fires that caused a problem, except for the campfire, which burned the town of Paradise, which we'll get to in a minute. But most of these fires have been in shrubland environments along the coast. You've got the Oakland Hills fire. The Cedar Fire in 2003 in, in San Diego County, you have the 2007 firestorm. And after 2007, I started thinking, you know, this fire situation is going to head north and Southern California is going to inch its way up in terms of fire behavior and that kind of thing. So we're in this environment where we think what's happening now used to happen in the past. And that's not necessarily so. So in the past, and we'll never really know, despite what some people may seem to be convinced of, you really have three fire patterns. You have the modern fire pattern right now, where you have increasing fires, and a lot of that's driven by dry climate, which is likely driven by climate change, because the drier the environment, the more fires you're going to have. And you've had all these devastating fires this summer in lots of places because it's just dry. And then you've had these lightning ignited fires, which is the natural way fire usually ignites. And because of the dry landscape, they've really taken off and like the, in the past. So in many ecosystems in California, contrary to popular opinion, that new fire regime that we've seen over the last century, there's more fire in most of the landscape than ecologically those landscapes can tolerate. So in, in, in sage scrub and, and chaparral, you're losing those natural communities to too many fires. And what does that mean? Well, that means 
more than one every 30 years or so. You've got some areas, especially where there's freeways, the Cajon Pass, the Sepulveda Pass in LA, the Tajon Pass that goes into the Central Valley. Those areas have burned so many times, sometimes once a year, that native plants just can't survive. So those areas are getting filled up with weeds, which by the way, are more flammable than the shrubs themselves. And so they kind of create a positive feedback loop, causes more and more fires, which interestingly enough, are cooler fires than the shrublands fires. And shrubs in chaparral and sage scrub, again, counterintuitive, the hotter, the better, because that allows the seeds and the shrubs and all organisms intermixed, uh, the opportunity to respond to the natural pattern, which are hot, severe fires. People don't think that's natural because we keep getting this sort of monologue about how unnaturally hot these fires are. Well, hot, fires are hot. <laughs> it's not a mystery. And some fires can be hotter than others. But when it comes to shrublands, the hotter, the better, basically. The previous fire regime before Euro-Americans sort of entered the scene was what you can call the indigenous fire regime. And that's where you have people who have been living on the landscape sustainably, primarily because of the numbers that, that are there, that burned areas around their villages, creating a, an abundance of food materials and things they needed. But out in the backcountry, things are left alone. So you didn't have what we have today, losing ecosystems consistently. Back then, you lost native ecosystems around villages nearby because of the burning, which makes sense because that's where they were living. But for most of the state, things were fine. They were still operating under the previous fire regime before indigenous people showed up. And that's the natural fire regime. So there's an important distinction there. People talk about the natural fire regime that's happened when Native Americans were here. That's not the natural fire regime. Native Americans were humans that occupied the landscape, that modified it in the way they needed to to survive, but they did it sustainably. They were intelligent about it. We've changed all that. So probably the fire regimes that really were here, that all of these animals and plants adapted to before humans showed up in great enough numbers to have an impact fire-wise, which was probably anywhere between 10 and 5,000 years ago. The fire return interval in Chaparral is probably in some areas on the order of centuries. And the same thing with some of these forests. But like now, there were periods of time when there was a long-term drought and there was a lot of dead material. The temperature went up one summer, the lightning strikes hit, the humidity was down and the winds blew and you had huge fires like you have today that just burned until either the weather changed or it hit the Pacific Ocean. So we're under this illusion that these big fires are unnatural and, and overly severe. We're really measuring it based on our very limited amount of time here. And this notion that you know, we've got to get in there and manage things. We've been wrong so many times in the past in our nature management. That confidence, actually the hubris, I think, that I, I, I hear sometimes from land managers about what we can do now to fix things when we never have been able to do that properly in the past anyway, really makes me nervous. If I were to combine what you just said with some of the research I did to prepare for this discussion, well, I guess, first of all, we're mainly talking about California, and a lot of these themes do apply to much of Western North America. But, you know, for example, a drier climate, longer fire seasons, widespread impact on the landscape, whether it's from invasive species or grazing or whatever, those, those all apply to much of the West. 
But focusing on California, looking at the natural fire regime, only lightning or maybe perhaps a volcano or something would start a fire when you go to pre-human times or even the indigenous era. So looking at summer in California, and sorry, this is another really long-winded preface to a question, uh, but I'm really hoping you can help correct anything that I'm wrong about. So that's, that's why I'm being maybe overly verbose. But most years, coastal chaparral wouldn't really have any lightning at all. Now, the Sierra Nevada, of course, is a little bit different. That's a bit more inland. There's more uplift. They see thunderstorms more often. Most years, in fact, they get a few thunderstorms, but it's nothing like what, say, Colorado gets in the summer. So my assessment is that most fires these days are human-caused, and that's true for much of North America, but especially in California. And whether it's electrical utilities or cigarettes or off-roading or whatever the, the cause might be. And these happen all year and at the worst possible time. So in the middle of summer, when traditionally there'd be no lightning happening, people are starting fires. And it could be during one of these heat waves with severe downsloping winds that really drive a fire. So again, looking back 500 years, we would have probably seen many summers in a row, perhaps decades, with no lightning to start fires. But when there would be lightning, kind of like what happened this year, it would have been a lot less frequent, but perhaps result in much bigger fires. Is that roughly accurate? Again, it's it's dependent on the location, right? <laughs> but I, I think you've pretty much summed it up. I think, you know, on the coast, the coast of California has some of the lowest lightning frequencies on the continent. And so when people talk about how fires used to happen every five or six years, well, that's just not physically possible unless humans were involved. So places like Mount Tamalpais in Northern California or San Luis Obispo or coastal San Diego County, you just didn't have the fires. And, and it would probably be centuries before these areas would burn again. Now, there are lightning fires and they do occur. And generally speaking, unless everything lines up, the low humidity, the wind and the temperatures, they probably wouldn't go very far. But things line up sometimes. So probably based on the data we've got anyway, there was probably a pretty large fire two to three times a century. And when I'm saying large, I'm, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of acres because these things are driven by weather. They're not driven by fuel. And it sounds counterintuitive. You know, you go, so you're telling me if you have a bunch of trees and shrubs that that's not going to be a hot, intense fire and that's not why we have big ones? Well, yeah, basically I'm saying that because... You try to get a campfire going with wet wood, it's just not going to happen. A great little party trick you can do is to put a styrofoam cup full of water in the middle of a campfire and make bets to see, ask people how long is it going to take for that styrofoam cup to melt. It, it won't melt until all the water's evaporated, then instantly it'll melt. <laughs> so you have to drive all the water out of the wood and the material in order for it to burn. So I have been on a number of fires where just really intense, scary fire fronts have hit a chaparral stand that's 10 feet tall and the fire goes out. That's really counterintuitive. I mean, what's going on there? Well, in the situation I'm talking about, there was a marine layer that kept the chaparral relatively moist when the fire hit it. And we're talking about the Cedar Fire in 2003 in San Diego. And it went screaming across the county the wind kept blowing and it slowed down and it hit this marine layer of influenced vegetation uh, habitat and it just went out by itself. This is so contrary to what people think. In fact, there was a radio host down here that credited the Marines 
putting out that fire. And he was blaming the city fire department for being incompetent and costing too much. And the Marines did this fire suppression for free. Well, in fact, none of that happened, you know, but it goes along with the story, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe for those who aren't familiar with the Marine layer, I actually can see it from my house a lot of mornings. Basically, it's the influence from the ocean. The cooler, moister air works its way inland and it creates some low clouds and fog. And the plant communities that are influenced by the marine layer stay a lot moister and you actually get different kinds of plants. And you mentioned that the shrubland fires, it's better to have hotter fires. Is that the same in coniferous forest? Is the regime similar or do you really want to see more of those cooler understory fires? The storyline narrative you hear now is we're having too many big high severity fires, which are unnatural and they're fueled by all this artificial vegetation that's been allowed to grow because of past fire suppression, you know. And if we could just do what a lot of people think Native Americans did or or what ranchers used to do by burning off the material, we wouldn't have these big fires. So the problem with that narrative, it, it applies sometimes, but other times it doesn't. So it's a mixed bag. All I can tell you is, for example, the, the rim fire that happened several years ago right above Yosemite, it's been used as a testament of how horrible fires have become these days. And we're talking forest fires. When you look at the fire severity maps, and those are maps that show how many basically trees have died. That's what people care about. How many trees died in this forest fire? Because the model is really there shouldn't be any more than a dozen trees die in little patches. And the fire should sort of skunk along the ground and maybe occasionally scar a tree. And that's about it. Well, in the Rim Fire, when they did these fire severity map measurements, it was a pretty remarkably interesting mixed severity event that left a lot of patches of living trees. Some areas were burned pretty severely in terms of tree mortality. But five years after the fact, the amount of recovery, and I kind of don't like to use that word because uh, fire is not something that destroys things. It's just part of the, the continuum, right? So the system that comes up after a fire is what we like to call a pyrogenic environment that creates all sorts of wonderful habitats for animals that hadn't existed before, like blackback woodpeckers, a whole list of insects, a lot of different kinds of birds that generally don't live in forests at all, but boy, they love these dead forests that have been burned by fires. And underneath is this explosion of often shrubs and then conifers. And sometimes the uh, fire has killed enough trees it's going to take a half a century or more for the trees to return. And in the meantime, a lot of these shrubs like Cianothus and Manzanita fill in the gaps and act as nurse plants for a lot of these conifers. So there's sort of a skewed sense of perception here. When we see these trees die and the forest fire burns, that's a horrible thing. When in fact, actually what nature has done has reset the system to bring it back to a more natural condition. When I say that, is nearly all these forests that have been burning in California, they're not natural forests. A lot of them are first, second, third growth that exist on land that has been clear cut, sprayed with herbicides, overgrazed. And we really have an opportunity right now, at least in the forests that have burned, to let these things recover on their own. But I think what's gonna happen is there'll be calls for salvage logging, which lumber companies make a tremendous amount of money on devastating the habitat, and then going back in and replanting. And people love to replant forests, but you know, a lot of times if you just leave it alone, which is not what we're really good at, 
things come back marvelously. And you're going to hear a lot of people say that these big fires are destroying the forest and they're never going to come back. Well, is that because of climate change or is that because of the fire? If they're not going to come back, it's probably because of climate change. A lot of these forests that I've seen post-fire are just coming back remarkably well. The wildlife, the bird life, the, the insect life, the plant life, it's an amazing thing. And it just takes time for these trees to come back. But we're an impatient species and we want these things back now. So there's calls for youth groups to go up and plant trees and clear the dead vegetation out, the burn stuff. It's something we like to do because it makes us feel better. But in fact, ecologically, it often doesn't make sense. When we were chatting recently prior to this interview, you had mentioned that the campfire, you know, that horrendous event from a couple of years ago that destroyed the town of Paradise, that it actually burned over an area that had burned very recently, previously, and much of what had burned was actually reforested land. The narrative that the campfire has fallen into without thinking, well, the reason that campfire became so big and devastating, the reason Paradise was destroyed because of poor management of the forests, because it's in a forested landscape. And that's where the discussion ends. Well, it's totally wrong. It's not even close to that. Here's what happened. And this is not the story you hear. The fire ignited by a downed power line, and it was a, a wind event. And so the canyon where it fell was pretty dense with, with vegetation, i.e. habitat, which is what happens when you have a lot of moisture in an area and plants grow. So it started moving toward the town, but what happened was it hit an area that had burned 10 years before, 30,000 acres worth, and it was still about seven miles from the town. Once it hit that area, it just took off because there were no trees to slow down the wind. And worse, private entities, and um, they did a lot of salvage logging of the burned forest that had burned 10 years before. And then they planted a tree plantation in there. So if you know about tree plantations, they're very dense, very young trees, and they can provide some pretty dense accumulations of fuel because they're not properly thin because they want to make as much money as they can on the timber. So it hit this landscape of 10-year-old habitat, which was coming back beautifully that had, in areas that hadn't been disturbed. But the, the lack of the forest there, and it just took time for these things to grow, uh, that would have eventually created a forest again. It, it wasn't there yet. It created so many embers from moving through this young habitat that the town basically was destroyed before the fire even got there. It, it was attacked by a tidal wave of millions of embers just hammering into these little communities uh, within the town. Anybody can take a look at it. You, you look at these Google images and you see an entire trailer park of 300 little trailers that were occupied by families and just individuals. And the entire forest around the trailer park is still green. So what happened? Well, the embers took it out before the fire even got there. And the trees weren't the issue. It were these embers that just came in and devastated the little community. And this happens time and time again, where you see homes with vegetation all around it and the home is in ashes. And you see the same thing with homes that have 300 feet of dirt around them, um, where people have been told that's what you need to do in ashes. And so you keep having the same thing happen over and over. And you would think people 
in charge of trying to figure out how to prevent catastrophes would, would take a note, but they don't because fire is created when fuel is burned, get rid of the fuel and you won't have a fire. That's not the way wildfires operate. Unless you intend on paving the entire universe, <laughs> you're still gonna have habitat and vegetation that's gonna catch fire. What needs to happen is that town should have taken the fire threat seriously, and they really didn't because I think that 10-year-old fire had kind of put them into a false sense of security that, well, gosh, we, we missed that bullet, and so much vegetation has been burned off, we're safe. And that aligns with the paradigm about how we can prevent fires. Well, it didn't work that way. The landscape, which was only 10-year-old habitat, which is the landscape, by the way, they often talk about that you need to prevent fires, in fact, was the very thing that created the embers that took out the town. If they had just figured out we're going to be attacked by embers, how do we prevent that from destroying our community? For example, that trailer park I was mentioning, if they had had five 10,000 gallon water tanks surrounding the community with an automatic or a manual exterior sprinkler system that somebody kicked on before the fire got there, that trailer park and the lives and everything that was lo were lost it would have been saved. But we're so afraid of this thing that doesn't exist, a big giant wall of flame that hits these communities and houses explode and all of that, instead of knowing what's actually happening, we don't act proactively to do what we need to do to save communities because it's focused on the vegetation, the habitat, the dense trees, the evil nature, whatever you want to call it. If you live in a flammable environment on flammable terrain, there's only one thing you can do, and that is to accept that condition and then make your community fire safe. And it's very hopeful. It's a very positive way to look at it because we can solve the problem if we look at what we care about most. First, it's lives, then it's our homes. Once we get that settled, create the lower fuel levels, if you want to call them that, around the community, but leave the backcountry to do its thing. And realize the mistakes we've made in the past have come out to bite us. And it's not poor management of the forests, which is sort of a proxy for fire suppression. It's a result of private greed, frankly, that has clear cut, sprayed herbicides, planted tree farms to create a pretty unnatural environment out there. And the fire suppression thing really only came in at the end. And frankly, it, it hasn't much had much of an impact on these big fires, contrary to what you hear. It's more about our nature suppression, which is what we've really been doing. I suppose you could say that the reforestation and the overuse of herbicides, that really is mismanagement, but just sort of in a different way than you're talking about. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're exactly right. But when, when people say mismanagement, they usually, it's connected almost <laughs> uh, compulsively now to fire suppression. And then the government, too. I mean, they're the ones that are supposed to manage these things. And it's really not that. I mean, we look, we put out fires because they kill people. Fire suppression is not an evil thing. Yet these folks that talk about this, they kind of talk out of two sides of their mouth. They say, oh, fire suppression is horrible. We don't need to do it anymore. But yet they do need to do it because it saves lives and property. So where are you going with this? We can't let fires burn on the landscape. It's not going to happen. We can't do all the prescribed burns you're talking about because of the smoke and the ecological devastation it's going to cause. And so what, what's the solution? Well, again, look at the community and the things you want to protect. 
and that would save the vast majority of loss of life and and property that we've been facing recently. Continuing on the theme of the campfire for just a little bit longer. So we have a fire that was initiated during a high wind event, and it was started by a power transmission line failure. And as we talked about a little bit already, that wouldn't happen in the natural regime. It'd be very unlikely you'd have lightning in that weather condition. But in any event, the fire started, the wind was driving it towards the town, and it reached this reforested area that you said was very uniformly planted, very dense, optimized for yield. And when I think of the forests I've seen that are close to natural, or at least minimally touched, they're a lot more heterogeneous. It's kind of blotchy. You know, so there'll be some areas that are dense, some areas that are open, lots of different species. Some species probably retain more moisture than others. So kind of my naive vision is in that natural setting, uh, an advancing fire might reach a area that's less dense or has different vegetation and slow down. Is that roughly accurate? Uh, it is in part. So, you know, a way to really look at this, if you go on Google Earth and anybody can do it, go find Yosemite and, and do do the most recent, you know, iteration because you can change the timeline there and just get down to the ground as far as you can without getting too close and losing the broader landscape and just head north along the Western Sierra and just keep an eye out for the pattern of trees. You will be absolutely devastated at what condition the forest's in and it has nothing to do with fire suppression. It's a checkerboard of clear cuts, crops of trees in rows, open areas, dense areas, every other kind of area. And it's all been modified in a way to accelerate and increase profit and wood production. Now, we need wood. It's an important resource. But we need to confront the reality that that model is causing us a lot of problems. So we need to change the way we look at the landscape and stop looking at it like something to exploit, but rather something to learn how to enjoy and utilize in a sustainable way where you can still get wood from it. But this scarred landscape that you see when you do this little exercise, it pretty much tells the whole story. So yes, those areas, they burn incredibly at high severity. And you see this in the rim fire. The center of the areas are very red. That's the color they use for the high severity areas. Most of those were clear cuts and tree farms, which is ironic because a lot of that was bare dirt. Well, gosh, isn't that the thing that's supposed to slow down fires? Well, it didn't in that case, and it never really does. When there's a wind, the open areas actually cause an acceleration and an increase in ember generation in a way that that's why homes that have 300 feet of bare dirt are actually more vulnerable in these windstorm driven fires than, than not. But they're protected from the 98% of the fires that we can control. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like, we're gonna retrofit all our buildings to survive the 98th percentile earthquakes. Okay, that's about a 1.8. What about the ones that actually kill people and take down buildings and freeways? Well, we're not gonna worry about those. Well, you know, I think we should be more concerned about the China falling off the cabinets <laughs> at a 1.8 than death and destruction at, at 6.0. And we're not prepared for those earthquakes at all in that mindset, but we don't think that way. We actually prepare for earthquakes that we're going to actually get that are going to cause a problem. 
we don't do that with fires. And every time I challenge these fuel treatments, these prescribed burns, these fuel breaks in these wilderness areas, for example, or or places, and I don't mean wilderness officially, but in, in backcountry areas that are relatively pristine, I tell them about these wind-driven fires and they say, well, that's fine, but this helps us 98% of the time. I don't think we should care because that's not what's causing the problem. And again, we get back to how do we protect lives and property? It's not about addressing all the fires that don't cause the problem. It's addressing the fires that do, and we're not equipped for that. So how do we address it? Well, we protect the communities. Thanks for clarifying the impacts of the open areas in the forest. I guess, again, it's yet another nuanced subject that varies depending on the circumstances. So let's start to head back to your the topic that you mentioned of protecting communities and do that by way of the chaparral, and not just because it's near and dear to your heart uh, and mine, since we both live near it, but it's also, I think, where most of the wildland-urban interface exists in the state of California. And by no coincidence, that's where many of the wildfires occur. When I would have people visit me and they would fly into one of the area airports here in the Bay Area, you know, they'd often look down and see rolling hills of the brown grasslands with maybe a few scattered oak trees or some patches of oak trees and shrubs, but mainly just the brown grassland. And inevitably, people new to the area would comment because it's so striking and immense. Basically, they'd say, wow, those golden hills, you know, what? Yeah, that's just amazing to see. But really, that's not what it used to be like, and that's not natural. So I'm interested to know what did it used to look like? And maybe you can just give me a natural history of how, how it came to this. Sure. So we don't absolutely for sure know what the landscape used to be like, of course. But based on the research, it, it appears as if a lot of these grassy brown hills used to be predominantly covered in, in sage scrub type habitat with sages and, and, and the oak trees that were there. That was the understory. There were some grassy areas for sure, but nowhere near what you see today. So how'd they get there? Well, they got there because of overgrazing, too many fires, and just nature suppression, just abuse of the landscape. And so the problem that you face when you talk about these open spaces, and people sort of have a soft spot in their heart for them. You know, people love grasslands and pastoral environments. And I mean, it sort of links into um, the European past. We devastated those forests in Ireland and Scotland and England. I mean, they, you go there and you see these forests in chunks and you look at them carefully, all the trees are in rows. I mean, they're just, <laughs> there aren't any more pristine forests anymore. And the ones that are there were replanted 150 years ago by some rich person, <laughs> you know, you look at, and there's all these exotic trees from like Indonesia or something. You know, what, what's going on here? So a lot of these landscapes harken back to those sort of mythical times where you had Bessie the cow and the green hills. And that's an artificial landscape. And that's what's happened a lot in the Bay Area too. Now, granted, there's some landscapes that have a lot of serpentine soils and conditions that aren't conducive to shrubs or trees. You see that at uh, Mount um, Tamalpais, you see it on Mount Diablo, and that's where you get these mosaics sometimes of shrublands and grasslands together. And it's really interesting. There's a lot of diversity there, but many of these grasslands, which by the way are, are primarily filled with non-native weeds now, um, just didn't exist. And it, it's a product of our, I don't want to say management, our mismanagement, I guess, again, of the land. So 
people wanted cows. They wanted to graze. They got rid of the shrubs because cows can't eat shrubs. So a lot of that's a byproduct of what you see. Okay, so there was an active effort to replace the shrubland with grazing land, and then that's combined with too much fire, and I guess those fires then burn the shrubs, and the grazing comes back and prevents the shrubs from coming back, and then the grassland just expands. Right. These grasses, it's, it's somewhat of a mystery how they're so successful other than, you know, that's how they've evolved, because they evolved with us in, in Europe and the Mediterranean area in disturbed places over 10,000 years. So they show up here, and they're, like, having a field day. They seem to spread no matter what happens. So a lot of the growth is is probably just a function of their ability to spread. You know, the other thing that's important to know is this modification of the landscape was state-sponsored. There was millions of dollars and lots of effort in California to get rid of shrublands through excessive fire and, and overgrazing, because that's how you make more money off of ranching. Um, there was a oak eradication program that was funded by the feds and the state to get rid of all the oak trees. And people think about that now, my gosh, but, but yeah, that's what we used to do. What was the rationale to get rid of the oak trees? Was it just for grazing land? Well, it was to produce charcoal. It was an inducement to produce charcoal, which is a big deal in the early days. It was to expand grazing land, yes. And people just didn't have that passionate love for trees like we do today. It was all very utilitarian. If it didn't help us, it wasn't part of the environment. So now you you drive through a lot of the Bay Area and up in the hill, you'll see a, one oak tree, for example. I mean, that's a product of that twisted land management philosophy. And the cattle, once they cut the trees and they brought the cattle in, any oak trees that do come up, they get eaten by the cattle. So you have landscapes now that the youngest tree is 100 years old or, or plus. There just aren't any baby oaks anymore. So we're probably in the next couple of generations um, going to lose a tremendous amount of oak woodland because uh, there just aren't any babies anymore. And people talk about how, you know, ranching and farming, it, it's stewardship of the land. Well, no, it's not. It's, it's it's exploiting the land for us and the natural processes are arrested. Otherwise, they couldn't do what they're doing. So we just have to be honest with ourselves, realize that the problem is really looking at us in the mirror. It has nothing to do with the natural environment. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, we okay, so we've messed up the environment so much, we got to go in there and fix it. And I just just keep thinking about all the times we've tried to fix things. Fire suppression was good at one point, and gosh, we put out all these fires. Now, all of a sudden, well, we were so good at it, now we need to go and fix it by doing prescribed burns. What people don't realize, it isn't just lighting a fire here and there. It's it's an industrial process. Huge masticators, chainsaws, logging chains, fire lines. It's not a light on the land thing. I mean, you you got to prepare the landscape so you have the fire you want which means destroying mechanically a lot of the habitat that I think people love. And they don't realize what is really behind this. So there were a couple of things that came to mind as you were describing this. One was that there was a land acquisition not too far away from where I live by one of the open space groups here in the Bay Area. And it was a large former ranch. And in reading about it, you know, like I said, it was a very large piece of land, but the comment in the story was that there are very few young oaks on the property, and I think it's because it's been grazed for so long. I have the impression that they're going to try to recover it and correct that, but I'm not sure which method they're going to use, if they're just going to let it go back to a natural state or if they're going to actually replant. So that's a present-day anecdote that matches up with what you said. 
And the second thing, I, I guess I kind of implied that the hills here were previously chaparral, but from what you said, they were largely more of a sage shrubland environment. So maybe this is a cue to revisit these environments. Yeah, I liked your description earlier in that chaparral is kind of a woody habitat, and if you walk through it, you're going to come out cut up. But what are these indicative species in chaparral? You know, there was a lot of chaparral in areas that are now grasslands, so I don't want to make it sound like it was just sage scrub. And, and you can go, it's really interesting, take a hike. If you know about this, it's kind of like when you buy a new car, all of a sudden they're everywhere on the road. <laughs> you know, you just, you're, you've been cued to see it. If you go in the landscape and actually look for this, you see it everywhere. What am I talking about? The keystone species in chaparral is chemise. It's a, a fine-leaved little plant that actually gets pretty tall, but I mean, when it's baby, it's a little, looks like a Christmas tree has beautiful sort of cream colored flowers. And it's one of the things people have demonized because supposedly it's full of volatile oils. It's made to burn, that kind of thing. Well, the oils and chemicals it has in it has nothing to do with the fire. It has to do with the fact that it retards herbivory and it retards evaporation. I mean, that's why these plants have these things, but it's convenient to blame them for the gasoline in their veins, apparently, <laughs> as a way to demonize these things. Um, so you go hiking and you often find these really old, old chemise shrubs along canyons and fence lines where the cattle didn't get to, the machines and tractors couldn't find, and they're like a century or so old. And so what that's telling us is that chaparral was in a lot of places, but it's not there anymore because of you know the landscape that we get access, we've, we've denuded. There's a study that was done in the 20s, and one of the first people that wrote much about chaparral noted this up in counties around Sacramento and whatnot, that he'd find these fence rows of chemise. <laughs> you know, where'd they come from? Like what, why are they there? Well, because they were everywhere. And now the only place they can hang in there is where the cows can't get or the, you know, the masticator can't chew up. The fence is protecting them. So there's that. The other shrub that's really uh, is uh, manzanita. And that's one of the keystone chaparral shrub species that actually makes California one of the most biodiverse places on the earth. There's a diversity quotient in manzanitas that just far exceeds most plant genuses. Matter of fact, the central coast around San Luis Obispo, you do a 25 mile circle there and there's just incredible numbers of different species based on the soil type and that kind of thing. And they have that characteristic red trunk, which is really beautiful. Um, there's a couple areas near Pacifica up there that really have some beautiful stuff. The um, Bonnie Dune area that burned recently had some marvelous species, which unfortunately Cal Fire went in after the fact and put some huge fuel breaks in some of the areas that hadn't burned yet. So you've lost some legacy habitat that is pretty rare and increasingly so because of the fires. But after all, it's not habitat, right? It's fuel. They have these uh, bell-shaped flowers, which are really, really pretty. And the berries are kind of fun. It's there's an interesting story about the berries, by the way. The rodents in the chaparral collect these things and they cache them in the soil. And a colleague of mine, Tom Parker, has done a lot of work on this. It's really interesting. When you think about habitat, you usually just think about plants and what's there. Botanists do this a lot. Well, there are animals that live out there. And so these little rodents, they cache these berries and they bury them. And they do the same thing with ceanothus seeds, which is another characteristic shrub that's often called wild lilac. 
anyway, after a fire, oftentimes you go around and you see these little clusters of these little baby plants coming up that are actually coming up from the caches that the rodents made decades ago that either they forgot about or they were killed by a predator and so they didn't go back and get them. And so rodents are an essential component of allowing some of these chaparral shrubs to survive after fires because they plant, they don't plant, but they bury the seeds just deep enough to keep them from burning up, but close enough to the surface to be stimulated by the heat or the chemicals that come out of the charred wood or the smoke. So rattlesnakes are essential in the uh, life cycle of the manzanita <laughs> because they take out some of the rodents, which then in turn would go and eat the seeds. And this keeps them from doing that as much as they normally would. So there's some really interesting food web types of interactions going on. The ceanothus I mentioned earlier is really in a marvelous state in the early spring where they have blue or turquoise or white flowers, which by the way, dominates a lot of post-fire environments and the foresters and people who like trees hate them. And they have a tendency to go in with masticators and grind them up, try to replant the forest. And in the meantime, they're grinding up all the naturally regenerating conifers that are coming up through the Ceanothus. And they replace those with the nursery crop that they you know, had up in their nursery up in Placerville or wherever. They've done this in the Rancho Cumameca State Park. They've just devastated huge amounts of beautiful pyrogenic post-fire habitat and uh, tried to restore the forest. When in fact, what they're doing, they're, they're creating an artificial environment that is pretty depopulate in terms of biodiversity. I second your comment on the manzanita being beautiful. They're probably my favorite plant to look at when I go out hiking. And it seems like every season there's something interesting to look at. They have that beautiful red bark, the springtime flowers, the berries. They're in the fall, they have these bright red leaf galls a lot of times. And it's unfortunate to think that some part of the population doesn't see it that way. They're beautiful things. And, you know, they have that really paper thin bark that peels off early summer. It depends where you are, of course, but it looks like little little rolls of paper. And it's just one of the most beautiful things. And you feel the, the trunk of these things. And sometimes these trunks are the size of, of your waist. I mean, they're just legacy manzanitas, which probably can get up to, upwards to 200 years old. And about that time, usually you have a fire somewhere. So that's about, that's the oldest ones I've really come close to estimating have been around 200 years. There's some south of San Jose down there. There's some beautiful old things that you can climb up into. They're like trees. And the grizzly bear, that's, that was one of their, <laughs> I think the grizzly bear and the, and the manzanita were pals back in the day. They make tunnels in these dense chaparral stands. And uh, that's how they would get through the, the chaparral itself, because it's pretty dense normally. And they put their paws in the same place generation after generation. So these grizzly bear trails would just be a series of little paw potholes that would navigate through the chaparral. And not that it's a species you're going to see anymore. The last one in California was seen in 1929 in the sequoias. The last one in Southern California, at least, was killed in 1908 in the Santa Ana Mountains. But they used to dominate the chaparral. It was their preferred habitat. They weren't forest bears. They were chaparral bears. And so uh, it's on the state flag for a reason. It really was the boss. And it really made an impact on people. But um, we took care of that one pretty quickly because their dispositions were too much like ours. And we can't coexist with an intelligent, cranky animal. <laughs> That's actually a really good analogy. When you mentioned that the natural fire return interval in Chaparral is several decades or maybe even centuries, 
you know, I know that there's some interesting forensics with charcoal records and ash deposits. So is that what informs those conclusions? There's two sort of data sources for how frequent are fires in Chaparral. Um, actually three. So the first one is there's a lower limit, right? If you burn it any more than once every 30 years, the, the plants themselves cannot recover properly. They just, they, they, they can't because you need enough time for seeds to store up in the seed bank in the soil. We like to call it, uh, you need the underground root tuber, tubers of the plants that re-sprout to store up enough starch to recover after a fire. So it takes time for the system to be able to regenerate post-fire. So there's the bottom limit. It's a biological fact. Yet you still hear people saying things like, well, you know, the Native Americans used to burn the chaparral every five to six years. I don't know where they're getting that number, but the fact that chaparral still exists is contrary to that concept. You just can't burn chaparral like that because it won't be there anymore. And that's how the state and ranchers get rid of chaparral actually is burning it continuously like that. And it's a very effective method, even better than herbicides if you want to get rid of nature. So there's the bottom line. Then there's these tree ring scars. So you don't have trees in the chaparral mostly. And if you do, they get taken out in the fire, right? But there are big going tug fir trees in the Los Padres National Forest and elsewhere that are in canyons that sometimes record fires. Now, the thing about fire tree rings, fire scar and tree rings, is it, the fire's got to be the right kind of fire because if it's a big hot fire that chaparral typically has, it's going to take out the tree, right? So the only trees that are standing are the trees that were in fires that weren't that big of a deal. But there's been enough interesting information. A, a scientist named Keith Lombardo did an excellent study on this uh, in the Los Padres and, and looked at tree scars. And what he found was there were lots of little fires that actually dropped off around the 1870s. And that's when the Native Americans were taken off the landscape for the most part. Around the groves. Now, we're not talking about across the landscape. We're ta just talking about the tree groves. But every two or three times a century, he recorded tree scars in multiple groves at the same place. So what that means is there was a big fire at that particular point, probably. And so he found two or three of those per century, going back hundreds of years. That corresponds to the next data set, which is charcoal deposits, which you can find in the Sierra Nevada in, in lakes and off the ocean coastline. Off of Santa Barbara is a good place. They've done some studies there. And they pretty much confirmed also that you get these big, thick charcoal deposits every once or twice or three times a century. So there were, there's always been big fires on the landscape. Based on all that data and knowing humans increase the fire frequency by their presence, take humans out of the equation, it's obviously going to reduce the fire frequency. So you've got those three fire regimes. You've got before people are here, pretty long distance between fires in the chaparral along the coast, higher elevation Sierra Nevada, a lot more fire because of the lightning, bring Native Americans on the scene, they increase the fire regime and take out some plant communities as a result around their villages and do some burning in the forests. Just to back up a minute, the, the notion that Native Americans systematically burned every square inch in the Sierra Nevada, maintain its structure in some way, or shape or form. There's no evidence for that at all. It's um, it's a fantasy that the Forest Service and others who want to promote their logging programs want to get in the mindset of the public, which actually they've been quite successful at. Um, and then you have our current fire regime where there's too many fires everywhere, except in forests, and we're catching up on that now. Back to indigenous fire practices. 
I think for those who have spent any time in the backcountry in the Sierra Nevada, it would be pretty clear that it really isn't at all practical to burn back there. The terrain, the soil, or lack thereof, it just really wouldn't have a purpose. So again, the topic is nuanced, and indigenous fire practices, while useful, are not the solution to the entire problem space. Yeah, and if I can just sort of comment on that for a minute. So I, I've learned a lot about how to deal with this particular subject a lot. And in my narrow-minded scientific way of things, I used to confront people who talked about indigenous burning practices. Well, well, these science papers say X, Y, Z. And you approach people who have suffered so much, <laughs> you know, and have to deal with the dominant culture's paradigms and policies, and you throw more of that at them, it's not going to go well. And so I, I, you know, what has to happen is we have to recognize, first of all, when we have this discussion about indigenous burning, is recognize, number one, what the dominant culture has done to these incredibly diverse, beautiful indigenous cultures. And then say, you know, and we've done the same thing on the landscape. We've decimated these natural areas in a way that not even anyone from 500 years ago would recognize. I mean, and we paved over your villages and all the places that were the best places to live now have Walmart parking lots on top of them. (laughs) You know, so the landscapes that were relatively left alone and had fires on a more natural level, we've gone in there and mucked that up. And so, you know, using previous practices are helpful as a way to value and and enhance cultural connections to the land. I think that's incredibly important. We have to be careful, however, by taking those a step further and applying it to the entire landscape because things have changed in the last thousand years. You've got climate change, which is making the landscape more flammable and drier. You've got non-native weeds, which makes the landscape more flammable. (laughs) And you've got people doing stupid things by the millions on the landscape, making the landscape more flammable. So we're confronting an environment that's been really destroyed in many directions and habitats that have been compromised in a climate and, and species and a dynamic here with the population that Native Americans didn't have to confront. So the wild spaces that we, that are left only because they were hard to read, that the Native Americans lived in and enjoyed and, and respected, we've got to look at those now and say what nature is left. We've got to make sure we protect it. And there's different ways to look at that, but just see it's it's protected from who? And you know, this notion of wilderness is a sore spot for some people saying, well, you know, California was never a wilderness. There were people here all the time. Well, that's true. But wilderness should be thought of as not having anything to do with a pristine landscape. It has to do with landscapes we haven't messed up yet. And when I say we, I'm talking Euro-Americans. We haven't put the roads in. We haven't uh, done a lot of things. Native Americans lived there. So clearly they were impacted by humans. But Wilderness, what it hasn't been impacted yet is by the the profit motive and the destruction that we've leveled on so many levels. That's addressing a a component that's also something that we need to be a little more circumspect about. Absolutely. There's so much more to the story than just the fire, of course. 
There's the people, the culture, the landscape. And uh, circling back to present day and protection of life and property, you mentioned exterior sprinklers. How do they work? How much do they cost? And why don't we see more of them? When people think about fire, they think about these walls of fire that hit homes. And that's why homes ignite. Well, that's generally not true. They ignite by embers that come from a mile or so ahead of the fire front because of the wind. That's how most homes ignite. And most communities are devastated by. So how do we defend against those? Other than trying to make sure those things don't get into your house by ember-resistant vents and clearing your gutter, that kind of thing, so they wouldn't land there, and making sure your roof's secure and there's not a lot of flammable material around your house, the thing that's important is wet objects do not catch fire. And so how do you make your house wet? Well, the current paradigm is in the fire code, let's put interior sprinklers into the house. Well, that's based on an old model that came from the urban environments where fire started on the stove or somebody's candle or a cigarette. That's not how these fires work. The fires are coming from the outside. So what what do you do with sprinklers on the inside? It's a human safety thing. It lets people get out, but it ends up if the... If the fire doesn't take out the house, the sprinklers will on the inside, right? I mean, it just damages the inside. So put the sprinklers on the outside because that's where the fires are coming. There's a bunch of models out there that can be everywhere from $200 to 10, 20, 30, 50,000 dollars. Uh, there's a number of companies, and unfortunately, they're not in the United States for the most part. There's a couple. But most of these outfits are in Oregon, excuse me, are in Canada and Australia because those people have dealt with fires for a long time and they have exterior sprinklers all the time. I mean, that's just what they do. In Canada, they even have exterior sprinklers in forests to stop fires. It's, it's really quite amazing. And, and amazingly so, the fire stops because wet things don't burn. So there's an outfit in Canada called Wasp and they create this little fire protection kit for 200 bucks. And there's a guy in Murphy's, California, it's, it's a little town on the Western Sierras that has uh, bought a bunch of these things and, and you can buy them from him. So you don't have to deal with the exchange and all of that. And it's basically two little sprinklers and a couple hoses and a setup kit that you put these sprinklers and it's they're little small heads at either corner of your house. They're connected to hoses that go down and there's a two-pronged hose bed that you hook them up to, you turn this, the water on and these sprinklers spray out about 30, 40 feet. It's pretty amazing, just little tiny sprinkler heads. And over a period of an hour or less, they just saturate not just the house, but the surrounding environment, creating an increase in humidity. So when the embers do arrive, they don't have a chance. They hit this moist environment and they go out like right now. So what's, what's the problem with this particular model? Well, a lot of these fires supposedly happen so quick that people can't escape and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes that'll happen, sure, and, and you don't have time. But most of these fires, you've got at least a couple hours lead time. And the model now is everybody get in your car and get out. Well, of course, what happens then? The, the roads get jammed and people die because they're trying to evacuate in, in a dangerous environment. So what can happen is, you know, hit <laughs> the sprinkler system before you leave, if you leave on time, 
And if you can't leave, you're trapped. Well, hit the sprinkler system. And it took about an hour and a half or two before the campfire hit paradise. So there was time. Uh, the Woolsey fire in, in Malibu uh, recently, they had an entire day before the fire got to the homes it burned. And this is often the case in many situations. I mean, these fire events, they're multi-day events. They're not just instantaneous. So you can secure a moist perimeter. Let's say the infrastructure goes down and there's no water pressure. There's no electricity. How's that going to work? And that's usually the thing I'm confronted with every time I talk about these things. And my response is, look, people said we couldn't get to the moon. You know how they got to the moon? They said, you know, we're not interested in how we can't do something. Let's figure out how to do it. And that's what you do with sprinklers. Okay, the system goes down. What are we going to do? You can get an exterior pump that's not plugged in. It's powered by gasoline or diesel. And you have a source of water that's independent. A lot of us have swimming pools. If you don't have that, you can get a water tank. And it's expensive. It's anywhere from six to 10 grand, depending on what size of tank you're going to get. And sometimes you can have gravity-fed water tanks. But what happens, you have an independent system off the grid, and the fire comes, and you can turn it on manually. And if you want to do an automatic system that has heat sensors around your house or whatever, you know, or ember catchers, by that point, it might be too late. But there's other ways you can sense radiant heat from a long way away. They have those kind of sensors, which are pretty expensive. Anyway, the system kicks on. And by the time the embers start landing, your house is wet. So there's ways that these systems can work. In fact, a lot of homes in Malibu were saved because of exterior sprinklers. And the visitor center at the Malibu Creek State Park had exterior sprinklers. And that saved this really kind of fun historic structure from the Woolsey fire. So that's, that's one aspect of the protect your home in a wildfire component that most people don't think about. They respond to it in a kind of a you know, suspicious manner, mainly because it's so new. But a lot of the world is confronted with these kind of fires, uses exterior sprinklers, and it's something people should at least consider. You know, it seems like something that could just be part of, say, new residential housing developments so that everybody could just share the cost. Oh, sure. It's just like the sewer line. You know, everyone you know has to pay for the sewer line. You could have a fire protection system. And that little trailer park in Paradise that you can see on Google Earth, it was destroyed, surrounded by green, green trees, by the way. Uh, it burned up because of embers. They could have had five water tanks with an automatic or a manual system kicked on, and it would have saved the park. And a lot of those people are low-income folks that don't have the money to buy a, you know, a sophisticated system, much less even one for 200 bucks. So that would have done a lot, but it's, you know, it requires a little advanced planning, and we're not really good at that. I first learned about you through the California Chaparral Institute, and I later learned that you founded it. So I'd really like to hear about the genesis of the California Chaparral Institute and maybe a little bit about what it is. Well, it's a fun story. I, I was a high school biology teacher, and I didn't know anything about chaparral. I knew about forests because you hear about those all the time. But I lived in San Diego, and there weren't any forests around here except in the, up in the mountains, which is not where I was living. So I, I had a remarkable experience one day. I had a door open outside of my to the outside in my classroom, and it was a Santa Ana wind day, of all things, and the sycamore leaf came in and was spinning on the linoleum floor by itself. 
and I was giving a lecture on photosynthesis or something. I'm sure it was brilliant. <laughs> anyway, I just stopped just cold and I saw this thing on the ground thinking, you know, I'm, I'm teaching about biology. Why am I inside? So I dropped my notes, took the kids outside. We went down into this canyon below the school without permission slips or anything. And I discovered nature outside my classroom in a way that I've always thought, but I never really actualized it. And so the next several years, we meet at the parking lot at the top of the canyon twice a week. And I'd spend class in the canyon. And you know what was in the canyon was chaparral and, and sage scrub with some trees in the repairing area. And I, okay, what's the difference between sage scrub and, and chaparral and are trees part of it? And so I was a learning curve that I learned this stuff on my own. And then I started reading some of the research papers. So that, that started my love for the environment. I left education because I was getting tired of the adults, not the kids, the administrators, not so much the parents. <laughs> And I had two boys of my own that were young, and I felt like I would just be better at home raising them. Well, the 2003 Cedar Fire happened down here in San Diego while I was out of the system. And my publisher that I had tapped into to create this guide for nature in San Diego County a few years back when I had gotten a fellowship to, to write it, called me up and said, you know that thing you haven't written? Why don't we get that thing finished? Because a lot of it has to do with fire. I said, yeah, you're right. So I published this book, Fire, Chaparral, and Survival in Southern California. And when you publish a book, whether it's any good or not, you become an expert all of a sudden. So I started on that. I got it published and I got invited to go to meetings. And, you know, they'd introduce themselves around the table as you do in meetings and, and, and conferences. And people would say who they were. And they got to me and I, I'd say, well, I'm Rick Halsey. I'm a former high school biology teacher. <laughs> and they would go, well, that's very nice. And they'd go on to the president of the United States and the Pope or whoever, who was much more important than me. So I had a conversation with my dog and I said, you know, we need to start something so I become more relevant. So we started the Chaparral Institute, he and I, and I became its director. And so henceforth, I was introduced that way and people started paying attention to me <laughs> because I was the director of something. Your dog sounds very wise. Well, it was interesting. And I was under the illusion that if you learn the science and, and participate in, in governance and provide information to government bodies, they would thank you for that and modify policy accordingly. Unfortunately, that didn't happen in San Diego County. And after the Cedar Fire, after all the testimony and everything that I offered and everybody else did, they decided, well, we're just going to go clear 300 square miles of habitat and be done with it. I said, wait a minute, that's, that's not the way you do this. So what do you do? Well, fortunately, I'd been involved in the entire process, which gave me legal standing to take these people to court. And I had the Chaparral Institute, which was just sort of me and my dog. And then I, at that point, I had several hundred members that had contributed. They bought my book and donated to help me, you know, do some education programs. And so I said, well, I better nonprofitize myself. So I became a nonprofit pretty quickly. And that allowed me to sue the County of San Diego as a nonprofit. And we stopped that project. It was the first lawsuit I think they ever lost. And I was persona non grata for about 10 years until the people that were involved either passed away or retired. Now, most of the people like me again, I think. But that's how it started as a kind of thing that was interesting. And then it was a thing to protect nature. And then it became a nonprofit to go to court. And so here we are. So that was in 2003, 2004, and a lot of things have happened since then. Um, a lot of fires, 
a lot of wonderful education programs, which actually now are focused, interestingly enough, in the same way my teaching used to be. I use my teaching career and teaching biology as a sneaky way <laughs> to actualize my hidden agenda. And that was to help students believe in themselves and question their, themselves, question society, be confident enough to do so, and to make a difference in the world. And so biology allowed me to do that because I'd sneak that stuff in all the time, you know, the, my own behavior as a role model. And with what I'm doing now, I use nature education as a way to help people really get in touch with themselves in a way, frankly, most of us have forgotten. We came out of nature. Nature fulfilled us. It provided us all sorts of wonderful psychological and physiological benefits. Our removal has caused a lot of major health problems. But you go outdoors, and I don't care if you're on your mountain bike, you've got earbuds in, just being outdoors, seeing green, decreases your heart rate, reduces your blood pressure, increases your T-cell count, your immune system. You know, if you go to your doctor's office, you'll often see a picture of uh, forests or something, right? The reason that's there was a gallbladder doctor in, the, I think it was in the 80s or 60s, maybe, I forget which, but he, he wanted to find out how the recovery rate would change for patients that recovered on the side of the hospital that faced the park as opposed to the side of the hospital that faced another hospital building. In a matter of months, it was pretty clear. The people on the park side, the nurses liked them better. They asked for less uh, drugs. The recovery rate was significantly faster. Just seeing green allows you to become a healthier person. It's a physiological, mental thing. It's, it's a, Talk about a health crisis. We're indoors all the time. That's, that's part of the problem. So getting outside and reconnecting with nature, wonderful things start happening. You, you start thinking clearer, and you're in an environment that doesn't really care who you are. You could be you know, rich, poor. You think you're overweight or not. You don't like it the way you look. Nature doesn't care. You can trip over the same rock and die just like anyone else. <laughs> You know, and it's an incredibly equalizing environment that allows you to lose the trappings of all those paranoias and, and neuroses that we developed to survive in an indoor civilized world. And you actually start learning about yourself in a way that you can't do any other way. And it's no mystery why PTSD patients, a lot of the therapy they do is outside. We used to have asylums for people who were mentally ill out in the wildland areas. I mean, that's just what you did. I, I need to go to a, the asylum, you know, to relax. My dad was um, was a pilot in World War II, B-17s. And they had a thing called the rest home where, you know, if you got too impacted by what was happening to your friends and the missions, they didn't know what PTSD was then, but they'd go to this rest home and it was out in the English countryside and they could come back and go back to battle after a while. We've known this for so long. And so I use nature as a way to help people reconnect with themselves, examine who they are, examine why they're compulsively reaction, reacting to a certain thing the way they do. I mean, nature just clears the cobwebs and allows you to examine your life in a way you just can't do any other way. That is my long-term plan to stop having to live a life of whacking a mole. And what that means is I can fight a hundred different ecological battles and stop projects. They're just going to keep coming. 
What can I do to stop that insanity? Well, we got to heal ourselves. And I think that's why a lot of people are very attracted to Native American uh, and indigenous burning practices. It kind of reminds them the way it used to be. And I think intuitively we know we're so disconnected from nature. And we don't have to go back to nature or leave our apartments. We just have to be cognizant of that need. And interestingly enough, you can go out and be healthier by just hiking or having earbuds and on your mountain bike. But if you know that you know that that stuff is important for you, you know what happens? Your heart rate goes down even more. <laughs> your blood pressure goes down even more. It's a placebo thing because you know it's good for you. And so that's a byproduct of our nature education program. So yeah, you'll learn about the chaparral and the wren tit and the wonderful birds that are out there like that. and Manzanita. And you meet new friends, but what's actually happening, you're, you're reconnecting with who you really are. So that's what the Chaparral Institute's all about. So your structured educational programs and naturalist certifications are really solving the problem at the root. And, you know, um, it's a personal survival strategy, too, because I, I get a tremendous amount of fulfillment helping people enjoy their life and, and nature. And, it, and, and I, I don't get a lot of enjoyment going to court that kind of contentiousness and, and dealing with people that I find so disassociated there, they say and, and do things that really aren't healthy. And that takes a toll on all of us. But the structured educational programs we have, again, um, it, we're kind of off the beaten path too. I, we don't have the insect guy come in and talk for an hour and a half and the bird guy come in and the, and the, and the botany lady, you know, we, we do this educational engagement model, which everybody seems to talk about, but it's really hard to find because the person who does the teaching does the learning. And I can give a brilliant lecture for an hour and everybody walks away wonderful and they're back to what they thought before my lecture <laughs> three months later, you know? So I ask people, what's think about the time that you learned the best. When was that? And I, I have yet to have someone come up and say, you know, it's that PowerPoint I saw last year. <laughs> no, it's when you were actually out there chopping the wood that you learned how to chop the wood. And it's out there when you actually heard the birds and you try to mimic it and you, and you were part of the process. And so, so much of our educational program is cramming information and not using it and not having you teach it that we just forget it. I mean, what's the point? So we do a lot of engagement and it makes people uncomfortable sometimes because they're not used to sitting there actually being involved and they like to stay in the corner and just hunker down, but that's a lousy way to learn. <laughs> so we do a lot of, uh, for lack of a better word, hands-on learning that people talk about all the time, but very few people actualize. I saw a quote attributed to you and it was, our job as educators is not to convince everyone how smart we are. Our job is to convince people how smart they are. And I really think that embodies what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I used to, I love to get up in front of a group and talk. I mean, it's so ego. <laughs> it's so, it's so, uh, you know, when we talk, we usually talk at each other, right? We don't talk with each other. We're waiting. We're not listening. We're waiting to talk. And we're so impressed with ourselves. Oh, I'm going to show you all this information. Well, why is that? Because most people kind of are pretty smart about the world and around them, and at least their senses, and they can perceive things in ways that if you guide them in the right direction. I'll give you an example. 
one of my great lines, you know, in my lectures in the, of the past about Chaparral, I'd, I'd talk about the manzanita. And I'd say, look at this berry. Do you know the name of this plant is related to this berry? It's manzanita. That means a little apple in Spanish. Okay, well, that was an interesting fact. And the next hour, you get more of those. Well, to model what I am talking about, here's what I do now. I get up and I'll walk around the classroom or the group and I'll hold some manzanita berries and I'll just walk around. I won't say a thing other than, what's this look like? And don't tell me, what does this look like? And I have yet to fail. Somebody says, it looks like little apples. <laughs> Anybody speak Spanish in here? Anybody know what the word for little apples is in Spanish? And there's always a Spanish speaker, manzanita. Okay. So at least there's two people in the room now. We'll never forget that. That's how you teach in a way that helps people remember. Because if you're going to talk to someone or with someone, and they're never going to remember anything you say or much less change their behavior, what's the point? And I think about this during, you know, with lectures and people that drone on. There's a place for that. I mean, there's a place for a good lecture because it's fun. But if you really want to get the facts down and, and the information and change lives, and change behaviors, you've got to get people involved in the process. In my day job, I have to present on occasion. And over the years, I learned a similar lesson. And basically, the way I boil it down is when I do present, at best, I hope to convey one big idea and maybe three supporting facts. No more. How many times have you heard some guy saying that the, the fly through slides? Well, I don't have time for this. We'll just go through this quickly. And it's like they've got this agenda thing, you know? Nobody's listening. <laughs> yeah, I think I've convinced myself to do that in the past and, you know, under the false pretense that someone might actually go back and read the slides later, but I don't think that ever really happens. And I also, I heard a really good podcast recently. I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes. It's from the American Birding Association, and they had a high school teacher on from Massachusetts, I think. He developed a really successful hands-on ornithology class. And some of the principles that he used really parallel what you use. So I think people might like to hear that. So we've been talking a while, and I appreciate your generosity with your time. So to start to wrap up, where can people find you and the California Chaparral Institute online? Well, we're at uh, CaliforniaChaparral.org, and that's 1P, 2Rs. Anyway, so Chaparral is 1P, 2Rs, A-L. Um, there's a lot of chaparral out there on the internet. So you type in, uh, if you can't remember that website, just type in chaparral and my last name Halsey or California or something and you'll find us. And we've got a lot of great information on there. We've got uh, downloadable research papers that help support the comments and the things that uh, are on the site. So it isn't just a place where there's a bunch of perspectives. There's actually research you can go and, and find to apply to whatever subject you're interested in in the chaparral. And honestly, there's just not a lot of resources on chaparral at all. Uh, you have to kind of really dig deep. And problem with that is there's a lot of misinformation out there. Chaparral's made to burn. It needs to burn. Um, it's dangerous. It's useless. It's the devil incarnate or whatever. You just have to be careful because there's a lot of that out there. And there's only a few sites that actually represent the chaparral well. Uh, ours is one of them. Another one is the uh, National Park site of the Santa Monica Mountains. 
some of the national park sites actually aren't that good, but the Santa Monica National Recreation Area has a pretty good website about Chaparral. The key thing about how do you find out about us and Chaparral, you just, I, I, I guess you got to have a critical mind and question everything you read, including what you read on our site, and just apply it to your own processes. And if there's something that confirms what you already believe, it, it should send off alarm bells. Maybe I should double check this. But what's really fun is most people don't know much about Chaparral at all because it's always been thought of as a wasted, useless landscape. And so it's an opportunity to learn about something you've never known about before. And in California, it's wonderful because it's really, for most people, it's the most accessible place to experience nature. And so it's a great way to get connected with your genetic past when you used to roam the, the landscape looking for food. And I'd subscribe to your mail list as well. Sure. You can go to the website and, and add your name to our email list. And I am pretty careful about that. We um, don't send any more than maybe one a month, if that. And our emails are not the generic nonprofit emails that alert you to all the disasters and <laughs> have pictures and things that you're not interested in. It's usually stuff, it looks like actually a regular email you'd get from a friend. And I have a few pictures and I always, I mean, the main thing is there's so much negativity in the world these days. And I really try the best I can, we do here. It's it, when you get something from us, it's 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 something that provides some hope. It's not false hope. It's there's a lot of good things out there, and I think that's actually not properly addressed either. Um, there's things you can do if you want to get politically active. There's all of that, but mostly it's information that's interesting and fun that you can share with people and help others sort of get in touch with the natural landscape. And honestly, people really ought to connect with whatever natural landscapes around them. And I. I've often thought, gosh, maybe I should just call this the Chaparral Institute instead of the California Chaparral Institute, because once you see that, you go, well, it's only has to do with California. But um, there's a lot of beautiful landscapes in, in the United States. And wherever you live, find the place that calls to you and just start doing some research. Because when I go outside my door at my house, I've got all these native plants here now. I go out and knowing that this stuff has been here for millions of years, and I kind of know some of the names of the plants. It's like I'm going outside and hanging out with friends. It makes your life so much more enjoyable when you actually know what that bird is there and by either call or by sight. And what's even more interesting is when you see something unusual, you know you don't know it. So knowledge sometimes isn't so much the knowledge you gain, but the experience that you'll get by knowing what you don't know. And then you go, ooh, I want to find out about that. And of course, I'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes. And I've browsed your website, the Chaparral Institute website, several times. And every time I go back, I always find something new that I missed the first time. So there's definitely a lot of interesting things there. The thing about us is very different than any other, well, most interactive nonprofits that do what we do. I don't draw a salary because I'm retired and as a teacher, I don't know what's wrong with us teachers. We all seem to think we should do things for free. And, you know, oh, I can get paid for this? So all the contributions we get go directly to our education programs. And I have people that actually aren't as demented as I am. And they, you know, you need to pay people to work on the projects we have. So the money goes to help uh, me get assistance in our education programs. But everything we do is pretty basic on the ground kinds of things. And it's one of the few nonprofits that actually 
can say that. So pretty much everything comes comes out of here and goes to people and that they contribute to is pretty much what you see. There's no um, sort of hidden $100,000 executive uh, <laughs> salaries. Well, it sounds very efficiently run. So before we wrap up, was there any other topic that you were hoping we'd discuss today or any recommendations for the listeners? The main thing is just to question everything you hear, realize you're connected to nature in so many ways, and just to get out there consciously and get connected with your local landscape and, and learn the difference between what belongs and what's natural and, and find the joy in that. And just share that knowledge with others because if nature doesn't have advocates, it, it'll get lost. And even people who don't normally go outdoors, take them on a hike and bring a bird book or a because everybody likes animals and they pretty, pretty much think everything out there is kind of neat. I mean, they get scared of nature and there's scary things sometimes. And But when you really get to it, it's, it's really our hope for the world is to reconnect in a way. And it's not just for our physical, mental self well-being, but it's also a hopeful way to go about saving our civilization and making sure we just continue on in a way that's sustainable. Um, because of the current <laughs> current plan <laughs> has some questions. And um, you just can't dismiss trees and animals and nature if you know about it. And this is how everything in the world has changed. When you get to know the people, you connect with them, you understand a situation, it becomes more real and attitudes change and things work out a lot better. So get to know your local nature. And magical things will happen. I almost feel obligated to add on to that point because it was so well said. And I think that people maybe who aren't used to getting out in nature don't realize how accessible it really is. You know, it could be in your own backyard or the neighborhood park or even just that interesting oak tree on the corner. If you look, there's always something interesting to observe that connects you. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. And I'm glad you said that because... There's a lot of folks that live in the cities. They live in environments and aren't the most conducive uh, to natural exploration. But just a tree on the street and birds. I mean, there's falcons that fly around New York City, right? <laughs> there's places you can go and parks you can hang out in. And, and even like a little window herb garden, you know, there's that. Even your pets. When you've got your dog next to you, you're connecting with another species. And it feels good because that's the way we used to be. And it makes you feel good because you're home again. And you want to ramp up that feeling even more. Sit by your dog next to a campfire. You're, you're not next to your dog by a campfire. You're 50,000 years back sharing an experience that's deeply embedded in your genetic code. <laughs> well, I think that seems like a great place to stop for today with that deep thought. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know we spoke a long time, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Yeah, Michael, you're uh, good luck with your show, and you're, you're doing great stuff. So it's been an honor to be here. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. 
I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.